Turn in your copy of the scriptures to First Thessalonians. We're again continuing in First Thessalonians now in chapter uh, four. As I was reading through this, I, you, you're going to hear Paul admonish this group again, really a, to talk to them again about how he appreciates their godly lives, but how he admonishes them twice in this passage to more and more. And for some reason, that reminded me of an old Gaither hymn or a gospel song that says, um, I'm going to live the way he wants me to live. I'm going to give until there's no more to give. I'm going to love, love till there's just no more love. I could never, never outlove the Lord. Join me as we read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. You know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be holy that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And in this manner, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to live a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we did... What should I do? What should I be? What is God's plan, God's future for me? What is the will of God for my life? It's one of the most uh, persistent questions asked by Christian believers, and I'm sure most of you have wrestled with that question in one form or another from time to time. Maybe you're in the middle of it right now. What is the will of God for my life? You know, I've observed all sorts of methods used to try to find an answer to that question. And one of the most common is the rational approach to the will of God, otherwise known as the sound mind principle. Uh, Some people make a list of all the pros and all the cons of a certain uh, course of action on a sheet of paper, and they weigh the strengths of each, and then they assume that the will of God is found in the decision that any rational person would make given the same information. Others prefer the mystical approach. They simply pray and and wait for God to lay it upon their hearts to do one thing or another. Finding the will of God is kind of like falling in love. 
Well, how do you know when it happens? Ah, they say, you just know. Then there's the uh, circumstantial approach. In this method, uh, people look for signs uh, in the circumstances of life to direct them into God's will. Like uh, Sherlock Holmes, they're always looking for divine clues to unlock the mystery of the mind of God. Uh, Similar to that, uh, though a little more deliberate, is what I'd call the Gideon's Fleece approach, alias the divine deal. Lord, if you make it rain tomorrow, then I'll take that as a sign that you want to go. You want me to go to Arizona on my vacation, something like that. Well, these are all uh, common methods of divining the direction we should go in our lives. And I even mentioned the entirely illegitimate means like the Ouija board, the palm readers of the daily horoscope. Looking for God's will in your life. What am I to do, Lord? Lord, please tell me, we beg. A rational reflection, mystical meditation, circumstantial soothsaying, they all may be part of the process. But I must say that I get extremely frustrated with people who neglect the clearest and most immediate method of all in discerning the will of God. I call it the biblical approach. Now, I can't tell you who to marry or what job to take or whether uh, you should buy a particular house, but I can tell you God's will for your life. Listen carefully. It's right here in black and white in the Bible. Look at this passage that we've just read. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse three. It is God's will that you should be holy. It is God's will that you should be holy. Whatever else God may have planned for you, whatever else he may guide you to do, you can be sure that it will conform to this simple fact. It is God's will that you should be holy. Holiness, the theological term is sanctification. God's will is for your sanctity, your sanctification. Holiness. Now, I recognize that uh, sometimes holiness gets a poor reputation as a virtue. Uh, We too often associate it with uh, holier-than-thou sanctimony or uh, holy roller enthusiasm. But I want you to see that biblical holiness is simply, simply the distinctive moral quality that should characterize the people of God. It is that which sets them apart as those who belong to a holy God. It is the essential family trait among those who are part of God's family. Now, the Lord said to Moses, we read back in the book of Leviticus, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. You see, this quality was to mark Israel out. It was to make them different from all the cultures around them. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy. I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. And now holiness should now characterize us as God's people in the church, as those who belong to the Holy Son of God, Jesus Christ, and who are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. This holiness. This is the will of God for your life. And that's what this passage is all about this morning. Now, as we've seen, as we've studied through this uh, first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, uh, he's had several chapters discussing his relationship with these believers in Thessalonica, commending them for their example, their faith, their love, their hope. 
And now Paul moves in chapter four to the section of the letter in which he reminds them of some of the things he had already taught them. And he clarifies some areas in which they still had questions. And it's important to notice that from the beginning of his ministry to these people, God's, uh, Paul's gospel message always had a moral dimension to it. Look at how he writes in chapter 4, verse 1. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as, in fact, you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. You know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Now, you recall, Paul was with them only for a short time, uh, perhaps a, a month or, 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 or two before he was run out of town by those who opposed him. But in that time, he had not only shared with them the glorious gospel, but he had talked to them about what the impact that gospel ought to have in their lives, how they ought to live. Now, let me be very clear at this point. Seeking to live in holiness is not the means by which we get right with God. Seeking to live a holy life is not the means by which we earn God's favor. And God says, all right, if you try hard enough, and if you work at it, and if you're holy enough, then you'll be okay. You can enter into my heaven. No, that's not how it works. See, Christianity is not just good advice. It is good news. And it is first and foremost not about what we must do, but it is a declaration about what God has done. He has sent His Son into the world. He's come to rescue lost sinners like you and me. He has done something for us that we could never do for ourselves. The Gospel is a message of good news. It is a message of grace. God's undeserved goodness given to us freely. Divine forgiveness offered through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And it's an offer of new life. It's a new relationship with God based on faith and and trust and love. But an integral part of that new life and that new relationship is a new moral power to live in holiness. For you see, God's purpose for us is not simply that we be forgiven for past sins, but that we be transformed, be restored into His own image. And so we talk about this being a community of grace where we accept you in Christ's name just as you are. God accepts you just as you are as you come to Him in faith. But God doesn't want to leave you just as you are. I mean, think about it. What if some gracious parents were to adopt a child who'd been uh, sucked into a gang life and become committed to, to crack cocaine? And so I accept you just as you are. Come, you're adopted now into my family. But those parents in their love would not want that child to remain in that state. No, they'd want to see that child delivered, rescued, transformed. And so it is with God in our lives. And so an integral part of this new life is the transforming work of the gospel. Paul had told them, you have turned from idols to serve the living and true God. You are now God's people. And so, as a consequence, you must realize it is God's will for you that you should be holy. For the Lord your God, who is your Father in heaven, is a holy God. Again, we're to live this way in response to what He has already done for us. We've been adopted as His children. 
We don't earn that right to be a child of God any more than my own sons deserve the right to be called my sons. No, it's by grace. But once we're in this new relationship, this relationship of grace, this truth of God ought to be at work in us so that we might desire to do what is pleasing to our Father in heaven. And so Paul wants to instruct us how we can do that. And that is by pursuing holiness in our lives. The holiness by which we display the family likeness. And so Paul in our passage this morning spells out what holiness means. Not exhaustively here, but truly in two parts. First, by negatively, by commanding that we not live in sexual lust. And you'll see that in verses 3 to 8. And then positively, by commanding that we do live in brotherly love. In verses 9 to 12. Now, we're, we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning talking about the first of these. Because it is so relevant to our current cultural situation. We're not to live in sexual lust. Now, I I recognize this is a delicate topic and I want to be careful what I say. I heard about a church bulletin with Sunday school information that wasn't so careful. It listed the classes for the teachers. The young adults will be studying Romans with Elder Smith. The seniors will be studying the Psalms with Elder Anderson. And the teenagers will be learning to say no to sex with Pastor Jones. Now, somehow that doesn't come out just right. So, but with that caution, let's dig into this passage in our search for the will of God for our lives. Verse three, it is God's will that you should be holy, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Now, sexual purity is not the whole of holiness, Though sometimes Christians give the impression that it is. It's an essential part of it. And Paul gives a great deal of emphasis to it right here. Avoid or abstain from sexual immorality. Porneia is the word. Porneia originally meant involvement with a prostitute. Porne. And this, of course, is the word from which we get the term pornography. And we'll talk about, uh, more about that in a minute. But its meaning by Paul's day had been broadened to include any illicit sexual activity, which for Paul means any sexual activity outside the bounds of marriage. Holiness means that we are to abstain from all sexual activity outside of marriage. This pleases God. Now, immediately there may be some who hear this and say, Well, you're just describing an old fashioned, out of date view. I mean, you've got to understand, Pastor, that that, that's the morality of the Victorian. But our culture has progressed since then. We've moved beyond the taboos of the past, taboos that repress the natural expression of our affections. And this talk of abstinence is just a, a futile and misguided attempt to turn back the clock. It just doesn't fit into our modern world. We can't talk about abstinence anymore. All we can do is talk about contraception, which minimizes the consequences of what people will do anyway. You hear that? But I think we have to understand that this moral standard articulated by Paul in this passage was probably even more radical in the Roman society in which he lived than it is in our own today. The idea of confining sexual union within marriage was almost foreign to Greek morality of this period. Various forms of extramarital sexual activity were tolerated. Some were even encouraged. 
prostitution, in fact, was accepted as a as a part of certain public religious rituals. In the ancient Greek world, chastity was almost an unknown virtue. And the general attitude is frequently illustrated by a quotation from Demosthenes, who was a reputable citizen of Athens, who said, we keep prostitutes for pleasure, mistresses for the daily needs of the body, and we have wives to produce our children. And in this licentious culture, Paul proclaimed that God's people were to be distinctively different. They're to be like beacons of light in a dark world, displaying to the world around them the new kind of life. The kind of life that we were created by God to live. And they were not to pick up the moral standards from the world around them. No, they were, they were to shape their lives by the character of their holy God. And so he says in verse 4, Each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust, like the heathen, the pagans, who do not know God. Now there's some debate about exactly how this is translated. You can see that as a, a note in our NIV Bibles, but I think the way that it's translated here is best. Each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not like the pagans. They don't get it, you see. They don't get it. Because they don't know God. They don't understand His righteousness. They, they, haven't, they haven't trusted Him as a gracious Father who desires what is best for His children. And they do not appreciate the seriousness of this issue in the eyes of God. They're ruled by their own passions. And in this admonition, I think Paul gives us four reasons why we should abstain from sexual immorality. First, he says we should abstain because of the character of the crime. Verse 6, in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or sister or take advantage of them. As Phillips translates this, you cannot break this rule without out in some way cheating your fellow men. Cheating. Now, this is obvious in the case of adultery. You're cheating on your husband or your wife. You're taking away the intimate affection that rightfully belongs to another person. But even in premarital sexual engagement, there's a form of cheating. It's, it's robbing a future spouse of the physical affection that should be theirs and theirs alone. And even more broadly, you see, every act of sexual sin contributes to the overall breakdown of the moral order of society at large, which affects every one of us. You see, sex is not just a matter between two consenting adults. That's a lie. There are always others involved. There are husbands and there are wives, whether present or future. There are parents, there are children, born and unborn. There is public health, public morality. There's the institution of marriage and the family, which is the essential backbone of a healthy society. And it's no wonder that every society in every age has felt it a public duty to guard and to regulate sexual relationships through the institution of marriage of a man and a woman. And ours should be no different. Consider first the character of the crime. Second, consider the character of the punishment. He says, look at verse 6. The Lord will punish men for all such sins. 
as we have already told you and warned you. God is not mocked. What a man reaps, what a man sows, he will reap. Now, it may be now, perhaps through sexually transmitted diseases, or even more commonly in the loneliness, the isolation that sexual promiscuity inevitably produces. When we violate God's design, we do things our own way, we inevitably bring suffering upon ourselves and others. And so sex outside of marriage leads to hurt, it leads to jealousy, it leads to rejection, betrayal, a growing inability to trust others. And all these create deep emotional wounds that leave lasting emotional scars. In that sense, there is no such thing as safe sex outside of marriage. Oh, the pain and the heartache and the shame that comes with refusing to live as God intends us to live. Now, the Lord's punishment may come on us now, or it may come upon those who flout his design later. Later, when the Lord chooses to settle his accounts, with those who refuse to obey him. But whether it comes now or later, that punishment will come. You can be sure of it. The deeds of darkness will come to light. There will be shame. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for everyone who scorns the law of God. Hebrews 13.4 puts it so clearly. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. You've been warned, Paul says. Consider the character of the punishment. And third, before you engage in sexual, illicit sexual activity, consider the character of the Christian calling. Verse 7, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. You see, God has called you with a purpose in mind. It's a goal for you to reach. God has called you in His grace to be forgiven in Christ, to be adopted into His family, and He has called you to give you a new life, and that new life comes with a new lifestyle. The Lord is preparing you to be the kind of being that will fit in His heaven. Consider what you're called to be. A man or a woman conformed to the very image of Jesus Christ, reflecting the character of God Himself. His own image. And finally, consider the authority of the one who commands. He's already said that in verse 2. You know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And again in verse 8, Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you His Holy Spirit. You see, this requirement of sexual purity isn't merely the opinion of puritanical Christians It's the command of God Himself. And it's as applicable in the licentious world of ancient Rome as it is in the sexually liberated worlds of Hollywood and San Francisco. Now, people may laugh if they wish, but it is the Lord Himself they are rejecting. The Lord who gives you His Holy Spirit. And Paul's word order gives special place to the holiness of the Spirit who now dwells in you as a believer. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit of God 
What are you doing as a Christian messing around with your X-rated Internet images or your date that ends up in, in the bedroom or your extramarital lover? Don't you see that your body is a holy dwelling? Don't profane it with promiscuity. Don't defile it with the dirt of sexual lust. That's what he's saying. It is God's will that you should be holy. That you should avoid sexual immorality. This command comes from God. This is His will for your life. Now, according to Jesus, such purity is as much a matter of our minds as it is of our bodies. Jesus taught this way. He says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, Jesus says, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Jesus took this matter seriously. Now, as we consider our passage this morning, we mustn't make the mistake... And thinking that Paul was some sort of a prude who had no place for sexual joy and delight. No, that's not true. The Christian attitude toward sex is not negative. It is positive. It is positive. That's the reason for all these commands. Because it's a good thing. Sexual pleasure is God's idea. He created it. It's not the devil's. No. God made us as sexual beings. Sex is not dirty. It is not evil in itself. Not at all. The Bible can celebrate our sexuality. Just read the love songs of Solomon sometime. They're right here in our Bible. Sexual pleasure is a gift from God. It's like the other pleasures that God gives us. The pleasures of food, of friendship, the beauty of a summer's day in the park. The key question is how this pleasure is used. How is it enjoyed? Because, you see, erotic love is powerful. It's like a fire. And like a fire, it belongs in the safe confines of a marriage relationship. Like like a fire, it, it belongs in a fireplace. A fireplace, a fire in a fireplace warms the whole house. It's a wonderful thing. But a fire in the middle of the living room burns the house down. This is God's design. It's a good thing. Sexual pleasure was designed by God to be enjoyed within the marriage bond of one man, one woman for life. God is the master designer. He knows how we work. And his commands graciously give us the manufacturer's instructions. So sex outside of marriage is not wrong because sex is dirty or bad. It is wrong because it defeats God's purpose for your sexuality. Your sexuality is meant to be an instrument for reflecting and for reinforcing a true and intimate love within the secure and growing commitment of marriage. That's why God created it. It is to unite a man and a woman in the committed covenant love that is marriage. And it's in that union that children are conceived. And it's in that committed covenant of marriage in which the sexual relationship reflects and then reinforces that children are best nurtured. 
God's restrictions here are not, are not the means of bondage. They're the means to freedom. They're for our good. They're for the good of society. God is not being a spoil sport. Get that out of your head. For God knows that our true happiness comes only through His holiness. This is God's will. That you should be holy. That you should avoid sexual immorality. Now, again, sometimes you hear people say something like this. We've thought about it. We've prayed about it. We feel good about our decision to live together before we're married or whatever. We think it's God's will for us. No, I don't care what kind of rational reflection you put into it. I don't care how coincidental were the circumstances or how vivid was your mystical experience. Maybe you heard literal voices, but that kind of statement, it's just garbage. It's nothing but self-delusion, self-justification. Don't pretend that it is God's will for you to engage in any form of sexual, extramarital sexual activity. He made this as clear as he can make it right here in the Bible. God's will for you is to avoid sexual immorality, period. Now, I can't deal with the subject of sexual purity without also saying a word about pornography. Pornography. You know, in sexual matters, we are probably moving toward a society as perverse as the pagan Greco-Roman world that Paul addressed. But in the area of pornography, we are entering a world never before seen in all of history. Never. Now, there's always been pornography, but it has never been more accessible than it is right now. I remember just 20 years ago. Twenty years ago, you, some of you may remember, there's a, there's a newsstand, Anna and Dale's, that came in just down the street, Columbia Pike, near Gallus Road. And some of us protested to our county supervisor because they were selling the worst of pornographic magazines. Now, everything that is in that shop is available in the palm of the hand of any teenager with a smartphone. That's the world we live in. We live in a world that spends more money each year on pornography than country music, rock music, jazz music, classical music, Broadway plays, and ballet combined. Sexually explicit images are everywhere. And this is what happens. First of all, they come to you. They come to you. They appear in something you're reading, something you're watching. They appear on your computer screen. They, compu- they appear on a billboard. And you are confronted immediately with the decision. Do I turn away from it? Or do I linger? Do I linger? Do I turn my focus upon it? Martin Luther famously said, you know, you, you can't keep a bird from landing in your hair, but you can keep him from making a nest there. And this is the decision. Because you see, if you start focusing on that stuff, then it will begin to take you captive. And it won't be long before you start seeking it out. It doesn't just come to you. No, you go looking for it. 
And then your focus starts to become a fantasy. There's this actual physical reaction that takes place, reinforcing a certain feeling with those images, and that feeling begins to captivate you. You become, in Paul's words, a slave of sin. A slave. Not long after you start seeking that stuff out, you will begin to think that you cannot live without it. That's what happens. You become trapped, trapped in a world of of sexual fantasy that creates a sense of shame and of guilt and sexual delusions that damage, damage and even destroy real life relationships with a current or future marriage partner. You see, pornography is wrong because it is inherently dehumanizing, dehumanizing. You see, the most valuable, the most precious thing in all of creation is the human being sitting next to you, created in the image of God. And what happens in pornography? In pornography, persons created in the image of God, persons made by God to reflect His image in the world, those precious persons are turned into mere objects. Objects of sexual love. And we forget That that person in that picture is somebody's daughter. She is somebody's sister. And most of all, she is a person precious in the sight of God. Do you see what a perversion that is? Do you see how offensive that must be in the sight of God? Would that we all become like Job who said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Not to look lustfully at a girl. Covenant with my eyes. I remember John Piper talking about his prayer. That God would so condition his heart in his desire for holiness. That the thought, just the thought of kissing a woman other than his own wife would be as repulsive to him as the thought of kissing another man. Lord, change our hearts. Sexual purity. Now, this is a challenging area, especially for men. And that's why on the back of your sermon outline here, if you haven't seen it already, I provided some resources for you as you struggle with this, as you seek to live in a way that God wants for each of us. And I say to you, if this is an area that you're struggling with, do something about it. Do something about it. First of all, you must recommit yourself to seek purity, making a covenant with your eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Recommit yourself to this. Don't be careless. Be vigilant. Don't let that moment when those images appear, don't linger. Turn away. Now, it may be that you've been captivated in this. You, you find yourself in, in, in a difficult, a difficult uh, emotional state. It may be that you need a prayer partner in this area. You need some help. Maybe you need to be a part of a support group. Whatever it may be, do something about it. Flee youthful lust, Paul says. Don't get caught in the vicious clutches of pornography or any other form of sexual immorality. For it is God's will that you should be holy. 
that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust, like the heathen who do not know God. For you do. You do. And your life should be different. That's holiness. Approached first from the negative side. What you shouldn't do. But now, more briefly here, holiness is not just a matter of what we shouldn't do, but also involves all that we are. And so Paul moves in verse 9 to a positive side. Verse 9, now about brotherly love, we don't need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Now again, holiness is not to be confused with simply a rigorous, legalistic slavery to law. No, that's not it. Holiness involves a change of our hearts, a change of our affections. It involves this notion we are set apart for God. But our lives are committed to Him and His purposes for us. It's, a, it, it's an expression of the life of God flowing through us in our lives. And because God is love, That holy character is first and foremost a character of love. And this holy love, says Jesus, is to be the distinctive mark of his followers, his people in the world. By this, all men shall know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Love one another. Again, this has been a part of Paul's message to these people from the beginning. It's just a natural part of what it means to be a Christian believer. It is something taught by God, he says. That is something God himself puts in our hearts when we become Christian believers. We we want to be a part of this new family. We want to be connected to other people in relationships. And Paul commends the Thessalonians for their love. In fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Christian travelers to and from Thessalonica had no doubt experienced the love of these people in this church. And now Paul encourages them to grow in this love. And I urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And I would echo Paul's words to this church. You you don't need me to tell you about brotherly love. You yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. You, You have a love for one another. It's evident to anyone who knows what's going on around here. I I see you come to the aid of one another in times of trouble. Providing meals in times of sickness, giving care and compassion in times of grief. It is a beautiful thing to behold. It's a vivid demonstration of the power of the gospel. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Well, specifically, what more can we do? Well, one simple thing comes to mind. Let me encourage you. To invite one another into your homes. Invite one another into your homes. Even if it's just for a cup of coffee. Let's get to know one another better where we live. Young and old. Long-time members. Those new to our fellowship. Joining in brotherly love. Now we have a scheme to invite people into your homes. Either through the bring and share lunches that will begin next month. We have fellowship dinner groups which will be starting again in the fall. 
where we match people up and you have dinner in each other's homes. But, you know, you don't need a church program to do this. Just do it. Invite someone, anyone, to spend some time with you over a meal, over a cup of coffee. That's where brotherly love starts. Give of your time to one another. Share what God has given you with one another. And so show ourselves to be disciples of Jesus to the world around us, displaying a godly holiness in the quality of our love. Now, Paul knows that such love can be abused. And he has an eye on this in the last two verses of our passage. Verse 11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands, just as we told you. So that your daily life will win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Reading between the lines here, it seems that some, perhaps out of an excitement about Paul's teaching on the return of Christ, which we'll look at next week. It seems that some had quit working altogether. Why should we? They thought he's coming back any moment. And instead of busying themselves with making a living, it appears they were busying themselves with meddling in other people's affairs casting themselves on the charity of their Christian brothers and sisters. And this was a concern to Paul. This behavior was not only inconsiderate and unfair toward those who were actually doing the work, it also reflected badly on the church in the eyes of those outside. No, go to work, Paul says. And in his second letter to them, he makes this clear again. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, if a man will not work, He shall not eat. We're not to be idle busybodies. We're to work not only to support ourselves, but so that we may also have something to share with others. This is God's will for your life. Seeking the will of God. I like the story of Alice in Wonderland. When she came to a fork in the road, icy panic just stung her as she stood in frozen indecision. She lifted her eyes toward heaven, looking for guidance. But instead of of seeing a heavenly vision, she saw only the Cheshire cat leering at her from his perch in the tree above. Which way should I go? blurted Alice. That depends, says the cat, fixing a grimly mocking smile on the confused girl. Depends on what? Alice managed in reply. Why, it depends on your destination. Where are you going? queried the feline fiend. I I don't know, stammered Alice. Well then, said the cat with his grin spreading wider, it doesn't matter which way you go. Do you know where you're going? Have you set your sights on following Jesus Christ? Have you set your sights on the celestial city? Are you a pilgrim headed for the promised land? Do you long to have a mansion in heaven? Is that your destination? Then it does matter which road you take. For there is a wide road and there is a narrow road. Which is God's will for you. Now you don't need to agonize over discerning that will. This is one case where you don't need to wait for a special illumination of the Holy Spirit or seeking confirming signs in the circumstances of your life. No, God has made it as clear as the words on this page. It is God's will that you should be holy 
that you should avoid sexual immorality. Instead of living in lust, it is God's will that you live in love. Are you really concerned with God's will in your life? Then you must be concerned with holiness. A holiness that is grounded in in faith, in the grace of God found in the gospel. You must be concerned with holiness. For holiness is is the goal of that narrow road that leads to life. And the Bible tells us, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Let's pray. I read from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of Him and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires. To be made new in the attitude of your minds. And to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Or Paul writes, do you not know? That the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters nor adulterers nor male prostitutes or homosexual offenders nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor slanders nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And we say, Lord, what hope is there for me? I know how far I have fallen. I know that I have failed. But Paul writes, And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We thank you, Lord, that as we hear this truth about what you call us to be, we also hear this word of grace, this word of your mercy, your forgiveness, how you you want us to to come to you in our weakness, in our failure and to receive your grace, your forgiveness and your power to live in a new way. Lord, we pray that this wonderful, transforming, saving process may take place among us to your honor and your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. May this closing song